presence of God transforms lives and heals hearts. Let's learn today truths on how we can access His presence and release heaven into our daily lives. Welcome to Manifest His Presence with your host, Dr. Candace Smithyman. Hello, everybody. This is Pastor Adam. Uh, I am excited today as we're going to finish this uh, last journey of Jesus uh, from the Galilee region to Jerusalem. This is the, the seventh message. We, we've basically been covering this for about the last two months, uh, if you've been following along. And so today's the last one, and I call this one the remnant. Now, there's a lot more in this, you know, things that, you know, I glossed over or didn't even talk about. Uh, but I think we, if you've been listening and following along, you've, you've, you've under, I think we're seeing what Jesus is trying to get across to all the different people groups that are with him is, you know, and that was a significant thing we talked about as we did this. So uh, let's, uh, let's, let's open up in prayer and uh, honor God with this day. Father, thank you for this day and for this time we have together today. I ask you for fruitfulness here, that there be truth, honesty, humility, uh, repentance from each of us right now, if we need to. We thank you for your grace and mercy and your love and your care for us. In the mighty and matchless name of Jesus, amen. And so um, I want to pick this up uh, with Jesus, once again, he's been doing this this entire journey. And again, I don't, you know, this journey, you know, I'm not, you know, it's about 70 miles maybe as the crow flies. It depends from where you started in Galilee. Uh, if you're at lower Galilee, it's, you know, less. If you're in the middle or upper Galilee, you know, the top of lake, the, the Lake of Galilee would be further. You know, um, you know, there's hills, uh, different areas. He'd head towards Samaria maybe and then go back. But you know, I think this took a few weeks because he was spending t- time with places and it wasn't in a rush, but he was getting across a lot of teaching recorded in Matthew, I mean, recorded in Luke and the other gospels as well, but Luke really painstakingly shared this journey uh, and it basically covers 10 to 11 chapters of Luke from Luke 9 roughly to Luke 19. Um, and Jesus is going to give a lesson to his disciples that is referred to here as we're picking this up as the parable of the persistent widow. And let me just, I, have, I don't know if I've done this. I don't think I did this, but, you know, I want to just remind us, what is a parable? And a parable is a fictitious short story that conveys or illustrates a moral attitude or a religious principle. And Jesus uses them a lot. Right? And the purpose of this particular parable is emphasizing constant prayer and to not give up hope. Don't give up. Right, So it starts in the beginning of the book of Luke with chapter 18, starting with verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. And here we go. Then Jesus spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain ju- city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now, there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward, 
He said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, and Jesus says this, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him through he, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will really, will he really find faith on the earth? As a question mark as he ends that. Now, considering that the disciples would be entering such a pressure cooker for the rest of their lives, and oh, by the way, now, you and I, this is where we insert ourselves right here, right now, and what's going on in, in our lives today and in this world today. We're going to be in this, we're in a pressure cooker. And we're going to be this way for the rest of the days that we have here. So the, the question kind of is, what would be the main remedy to keep them focused on staying the course and remaining faithful? Remember, this applies to you and I. What's going to be the, the remedy for staying focused and remaining faithful? Jesus' remedy, the answer, is constant prayer. And another thing this parable points out regarding this theme of, it's this theme here that it's, it, it permeates all this stuff is from the least to the greatest kind of concept. That's what permeates across this. Meaning, this is what the, I'm getting at. If an unrighteous judge, remember what this parable said, he didn't believe in God, he didn't care about people. If an unrighteous judge will answer fervent requests of a citizen due to, because he's annoyed, he just, remember, this says the judge did it because he got so tired of this woman complaining and coming to him. Well, then how much more shall God, who is the righteous judge, give justice to his faithful remnant when they pray continually? And God, Jesus says, God will, and he's going to do it speedily. Now, man, wow, hallelujah. Now, there are several things worthy of our attention in this here. One, the first off one I want to point out is this lesson was only shared with the disciples. Remember now, we've noticed this repeatedly during this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, where Jesus will pull the disciples aside and explain things only to them. Okay. Now, another thing here is secondly, God will avenge them speedily and without delay. Indeed, this this vengeance was to come within the lifetime of the disciples. And so all this emphatic warning is given to them and continues to be given to them, that it's going to happen within their lifetime. Okay, that's Jesus keeps telling this theme over and over. It's going to happen within your lifetime. Third is this issue, the issue for both the widow and the disciples would be justice against their enemies. God's going to bring vengeance for them against their enemies. Remember, remember last time, that last message regarding Luke 17, where Jesus warned them of the many stumbling blocks that would come, right? Remember that? He said, it's not going to be easy. You're going to have a lot of things that are going to try to trip, trap and, and entice you, okay? So stay the course and don't fall for it. And if you fall for it, get rid of it, repent of it, get back up and get back on the proper path, Okay? And then finally here, and it's certainly not the least, is that the defining issue would be faith. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? 
That's how this little discourse in Luke 18, 8 ends. Now, please don't miss this. But did you notice that the encourage Jesus is giving to his disciples to remain in prayer? Right? Remember back last time, the last message at the beginning of Luke 17, remember the disciples asked Jesus for an increase in their faith? That was Luke 17, verse 5. Jesus shows them now how to strengthen their faith through the tough times by what? By praying constantly. Do do we realize that praying increases our faith? Just stay the course. Keep praying. So I I hope people are, you, you see that this parable is an encouragement for us as well, not just the disciples, for us as well today. But then the following comments from Jesus infer that some of the Pharisees, even though he pulled the disciples aside, were still within earshot. In fact, some of the Pharisees, I guess, could hear him. And Luke records here, informs us that Jesus speaks to an unnamed group that's coming up here, right? But we have already seen the character of the Pharisees exposed more than once. And so this description that we're going to read here fits them well. Let's, let's continue on. And it's Luke 18 now going through verses 9 through 14. And it's another parable Jesus is going to give. But now it's for these that were listening. And it's probably the Pharisees. We're not sure, but let's, let's listen here and, and read. Follow along Luke 18, starting with verse 9. Also, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing far off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, I think once again, we see here the distinct feature of a true follower of Yeshua comes from among the unrighteous people, the tax collectors, the sinners, the riffraff, right? The down and outers. And I also think that once again, we have here another reminder that humbleness, right? Humble repentance is a distinct feature of the key of entry into the kingdom of God. And, 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 and just, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but just down the road a piece that they're getting close to Jericho, we're going to see the combination of these two qualities of humility and repentance reach a climax, if you will, in the person called Zacchaeus. We're not there yet, but that's Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And if we've been paying attention during this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, we should notice more than one reference to self-justification. Remember back the the lawyer from Luke chapter 10, verse 25, who Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan to, or the Pharisee in Luke chapter 16, verse 15, who got slapped with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus from Jesus. 
And here, once again, this unnamed group gets humbled by Jesus. And the overarching theme in all of this, this, the thread that's woven in all of this, is there is nothing we should even pretend to boast about before God that will aid in our justification. Now, the big picture here is that Israel must truly repent, as should every single person in Israel. And in our salvation, we are never, gotta got this, we are never active people. We're only passive. Remember, Jesus shared, he that humbles himself shall be exalted. And indeed, this humbleness or passivity is, an, is in itself a mark of those that are in the kingdom of God. I mean, let's just look what Jesus shares right after this for like confirmation of that. Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. So it says, the scriptures say, then they also brought infants to Jesus that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God is a little child will by no means enter it. Wow. Okay. So Luke makes it clear that those, that these were infants or small children, probably ranging from, you know, it could have been some of them newborn babies, you know, those that can't even crawl, up to, you know, those that are learning to walk and could walk, but are little, little kids, probably, you know, certainly less than five. And I can verify that because the Greek words used here are brephos and padion, which both mean young children or infants. And, you know, I mean, uh, the Apostle Paul uses four different words to describe our development as humans. And, and they're, they're, they, they're attached with a physical understanding. The, when, when we're infants, when we're in diapers, the Greek word is napios. We're, we're still wearing diapers. We're diaper-wearing Christians. That makes sense because we start out and we're babies. Then we move to the next phase, like little children. And that's the word used here, which is pation. When Jesus is speaking, first off, when in verse 15, when it says uh, they brought infants, that's the word brephos. And that means uh, similar to napios. It's another Greek word. Brephos means infants, children. But in, when Jesus is speaking, he says, let the little children in verse 16, and I and in verse 17, as a little child, both times there, it's the Greek word padion, which refers to the next phase after, after a diaper wearer. So, it, you know, maybe like, you know, kindergartner, but, but it's okay. And then the next phase is the Greek word technon, which is kind of like, you know, uh, a teenager phase, and then the final, the adult version of what a Christian is, is we us. Those that do the father's business and aren't about the self. It's constantly doing the will of God and not the will of man like so many of us do as technons. 
you know, that phase whenever you remember yourself as a teenager or if you've got teenagers or remember your children, if you had children when they were teenagers, that's the know-it-all phase and you don't know nothing. Remember that phase? Yeah. But, um, okay, so getting back to this, uh, this, this incident here in Luke chapter 18, verses 15 and 17, another thing I want to point out is these infants and children were brought to Jesus. Some of, in some cases, because they're so, they can't probably walk, they had to be carried. And I think that's important to grasp that in this context because infants and young children display passivity because they couldn't get to Jesus unless someone carried them to him. Because, I mean, you know, what I've usually heard on this text is that a child has a certain unquestioning faith. And that the key to the passage is that we must have wholehearted faith in order to enter the kingdom. And I'm certainly not discounting that teaching or, or that kind of understanding. I think that applies. But I don't think it gets at the whole depth of what this applies. Because don't forget that Jesus had recently, you know, very recently said, we covered this last message, and it was in Luke 17, verse 6, that only a tiny mustard seed-sized faith right, could work wonders. And we're, we're, we got to be thanking the Lord for that because who in the world would ever be able to enter the kingdom if the standard to entering was wholehearted faith? I think it'd be pretty empty, the kingdom that is. See, I think the emphasis we need to not miss here is on the passivity and helplessness of the infants being carried to Jesus, just like us. Like that's, that's a level of humbleness though. So many adults and many of us that are mature physically, we don't want to address. We don't want to acknowledge because we want to make it sound like we're the ones doing the effort. I mean, I just think about the guy on the cross next to Jesus, the criminal. Remember that? That guy didn't do nothing but just admit he was a sinner by telling his other buddy, even though he was cursing him earlier, it's recorded in one of the gospels. But then he says, hey, remember me, Jesus, when you get into your kingdom. And Jesus tells, tells him, you know, he says today, you know, he tells him, hey, you're going to join me. And just think about that. That guy didn't go through. He, he <laughs> I mean, come on. He didn't go through any church uh, indoctrination of, you know, justification by faith. And he probably does have no idea what that means. But he gets in. He gets into the kingdom of God. I, I hope you're grasping what I'm saying here. I hope you're smelling what I'm cooking. And it's, I believe what the scriptures say, it's these types of people that make up the kingdom of God. I mean, for instance, the tax collector, whom we just saw declare his total unworthiness apart from God's initiative to forgive. In other words, all who enter the kingdom, right, will be absolutely helpless apart from God's help. He that humbles himself shall be lifted up, right? Amen. Now, the continuation of this narrative brings a familiar scene. What we have here is this prominent, I'm setting the stage here, is what we got is a prominent young man. He questions Jesus on the requirements for eternal life. In other words, how to get into the kingdom of God. And this scene is almost an identical discourse from earlier in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus was approached by a lawyer. That was the parable of the Good Samaritan back in Luke chapter 10. Now here in Luke 18, we are introduced to, it's called, he is referred to as a certain ruler. 
Luke 18, verses 18 through 23. Let's read the scriptures. Follow along. Now, a certain ruler asked Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the young ruler said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, Jesus said to the young ruler, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young ruler heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Oh boy. Once again, Jesus is getting right to the heart of the matter, reiterating the, the costs of discipleship. This applies to everybody across the board, right up to right now. All of us who claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, okay, Anyone wishing to escape the coming destruction of Jerusalem, and this back, back when Jesus just gave this, would need to liquidate their local property. That's Jesus is giving them advice, right? Distribution among the other believers who also needed help during this upcoming destruction would only be the right thing to do with excess material wealth. I mean, we see this exact same theme discussed when the church begins in the book of Acts Chapter 2, verse 45, and Acts chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. They shared whatever, whoever had need. Remember who didn't? Ananias and Sapphira. And what happened to them? They were struck dead. The moment they admitted, didn't it take accountability to say, yeah, we did hold a little bit back. Now, this thing we're talking about is so obvious in the Western culture today. I'm hard, right at the heart of some issue, an issue here. People tend to take great pride in their possessions. So this, right, we find out he, at the end of the parable, he's rich, right? This rich young ruler took great pride in his possessions near Jerusalem. It would be unimaginable for him to sell everything for something he could not tell was definitely going to happen. He's like, are you sure this is going to, this destruction's coming? I mean, Certainly not 40 years before it would happen because that's what it took. It was 40 years from when Jesus said this, right? Jerusalem is dis destroyed at the end of the, the, you know, 68 by 70 AD. It's in ruins. All people were going on was these rumors based on Jesus's teaching. Yet this is the very standard Jesus is demanding for eternal life. For entrance into the kingdom, just as Jesus had already urged his disciples on several occasions not to die down because of his possessions, but to be prepared to get out of town at a moment's notice. This would be, we, would be much easier to do for someone who had very little tying them down. Are you hearing what, are you, are you tasting what I'm cooking here? This might not be going down very easy. You might be spitting this back up or not even taking a bite. But see, for a very wealthy landowner who had staked their social re reputation on their status, this would prove an almost insurmountable feat. It would, in fact, be impossible outside of God's grace changing the heart of the person. This is the exact point Jesus is making in this discussion with this rich young ruler. Right? The next verses in Luke 18, 24 and 25 say... 
And when Jesus saw that he'd become very sorrowful, Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Wow. And Jesus's audience realized that this was an impossible standard. And so the response is, then who can be saved? Huh. But Jesus reminded them of that all-important lesson he had been preaching and teaching throughout this entire journey. Only by the grace of God is anyone saved. But all whom God gives grace will be saved, whether rich or poor. And Jesus answers them when they say, well, who can be saved? He says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. That's verse 27. Then Peter points out that he and the other disciples had indeed accepted the high standard that Jesus mentioned here. When Peter says in verse 28, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And then Jesus affirmed the genuineness of the disciples' sacrifice. In verses 29 and 30, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Hallelujah. I mean, Jesus is assuring Peter that those disciples who gave up everything due to the great division in their lifetimes would indeed be restored in their possessions already in that generation and their lifetime, as well as in the future New Testament era and eternity for them. I mean, to, this ties right back into the need for a valuable network of friends among the so-called sinners that the Pharisees had been disproving of. I mean, just think back to Luke 16 and that parable of the unjust manager. In other words, Jesus is encouraging these disciples that they would not be left homeless and with nothing if they followed Jesus' advice. So it may be tough right now in the short run, but in the long run, you're going to be way better off. So what this interaction with this young Rich ruler boils down to is that this is the very same lesson Jesus has been teaching the disciples from the beginning. Only the faithful remnant would, would have faith and thus obey his commands. I, I, I believe this makes perfect sense and it's why Jesus rebuked the ruler at the very onset of the story. He says, why do you call me good? Right? And Jesus says, no one is good except God. So here's the something that always got me. I mean, this is a good question, I think. Was Jesus really denying that he himself was good? I don't think so. I don't think that was Jesus' intent here at all. Because if this were true, Jesus would be denying his own divinity. I would say, no, no, no. Jesus is, a, is simply setting up a test to this rich, young ruler's faith. Because the real question is, did this young ruler really believe in Jesus? Because basically Jesus is saying to him, are you calling me good? And he said, that, that basically then implies, don't you know, young man, that there's no one good except God alone? Which then implies that the young man, young man, guess who you're talking to? You're talking to God. And furthermore, Jesus is forcing the guy to remain consistent. Did this young guy believe in Jesus' words so much as to sell all he had? I mean, because... 
He can't even obey Jesus' clear and direct teaching, which is God. He can't even obey God's direct teaching. And this is proof that he didn't accept Jesus as the divine Messiah. By his fruit, he proved he was not part of the faithful remnant of Israel, in other words. And then Jesus specifically gathers only the disciples again for a special message. And this message is a clear statement of Jesus' soon coming betrayal and death in Jerusalem. Verses 31 and 33 in Luke chapter 18, right? It says, Jesus took the 12 aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not know the things which were spoken. What? Wait, what? What? Wait, now wait a minute. Of all the people hearing Jesus these past three and a half years, these, these guys closest to him, should have understood what he meant, don't you think? It's inconceivable that they would not at least understand the meaning of what Jesus said, even though they could not accept it. Well, at least, <laughs> praise the Lord, we're given a reason for their profound lack of understanding. This saying was hidden from them. I mean, I don't know about you, but this gives me great comfort. Even these 12 at this point, after three and a half years of walking and talking, touching Jesus, being all this stuff with Jesus, had not yet been given grace to receive the gospel of Jesus' coming trial and crucifixion. <sighs> I guess a good question is, well, then why? Why did Jesus call them together for this message? They, I mean, come on, they're obviously not ready to hear it yet. Again, even though he said it multiple times, and here he's like within a week, of this actually manifesting? Well, I think, once again, God, Jesus knew this before he told them. He's merely, I think Jesus is merely delivering the truth to them plainly so that they would recall it after the fact. How many of us, after things happen, do we go, oh my gosh, I was warned about this, and there it is. <laughs> I mean, we're told, we are told is the exact situation in Luke's account of the empty tomb in Luke chapter 24, verses 5 and 8. And I think this statement by Jesus also serves a second purpose. A nearly identical scene had played out very, a very short time before this whole journey towards Jerusalem. Back in Galilee, in Luke chapter 9, verses 44 and 45, Jesus tells them about his upcoming, upcoming death, and this was the second time he said it, but they didn't understand it and were afraid to ask Jesus about it. So here by repeating this and expanding this message to disciples in Luke 18, verses 31 and 30, through 34, just days before they entered Jerusalem, Jesus was reaffirming that he was still on the same mission he had begun, you know, years ago and reiterated just a few weeks ago when they did this, started this last journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's confirming to, for them the continuity of it all that they had witnessed and heard along the way. He's the same as he was yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
all the healings, all the kingdom teachings, all the parables of judgment to come, all of it pertain to this one insane mission of the Son of Man and his conflict with idolatrous, murderous Jerusalem. And while they still remain blinded to the message as he says it, their eyes would be open to it in very short time. Huh. Then once God opened their understanding to all they had heard and witnesses, their lives would be transformed as the truth and meaning of it all fully impacted their souls, fully impacted their mind, will, and emotions, which consists of our soul. I, I don't think this is any different than what we witness in our culture with respect to history or any culture with respect to history. What I'm getting at is if we don't study and learn from our history, we will repeat it. As, you know, as Christians and followers of Yeshua, we are taught not to make an idol and not to bow down to that idol. We are taught not to steal, lie, cheat. But over the past, you know, I don't know, 100 years or so, all of a sudden, right, I've watched this the last 15 to 20 years. It's like we're rewriting history to suit our likes and dislikes. We're getting rid of things that are there so that we learn from them to not repeat the same mistakes, yet we want to get rid of them. We're getting rid of them. I mean, we know through history that theft and homosexuality and pornography and genocide was wrong yesterday. But there are yet those who say, well, tomorrow, who knows? Maybe that'll be okay. I mean, folks, a society that cannot tolerate a judge beyond what history has revealed will find that it can learn to tolerate anything. And boy, oh boy, is that what's not going on? What we read in the Bible is that God doesn't like evil and he will take action against evil. He always has. He always will. You know, the corporate church needs to preach that God is still active and still makes himself known in blessings and judgment. We tend to forget the judgment part and have for the last 20 to 30 years. We just, we just don't want to talk about sin. We just don't want to talk about judgment because it's not so uh, seeker-friendly. But people aren't going to come in if we do all that. Well, then we're not setting them up properly and we're teaching them a wrong gospel of the kingdom of God. Right? It's such an unpopular as it was in the Old Testament. Man, they used to throw the prophets down in the wells when they'd say things that the, the leaders didn't want to hear. Huh. Which brings us to this final portion of Luke chapter 18. It brings in these themes Jesus had been talking about, I think, beautifully. They've been talking about the themes of the remnant, the kingdom of God, blindness, and persistence together in one healing episode. Let's read this in Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. Then it happened, as he was coming near Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he carried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, Jesus asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. 
And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Okay, so there are multiple things emphasized here. One is that Bartimaeus addressed Jesus as son of David, which is an acknowledgement of Jesus's kingship. And, and soon Jesus would make the point himself while in Jerusalem embarrassing the Pharisees out in the open in the temple courts when he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be David's son? I love that. I just love that one. Right? Another point here is that the crowd of people who went up from and ran in front of Bartimaeus, told him, frankly, to shut up. I mean, but Bartimaeus shouted out, right? The Greek word here means to shout out loud, to cry out. Well, that makes me think of some things I've experienced in my life, especially in a church setting. I know that it can frustrate some folks when people shout out to Jesus. Also, these people were in front of Bartimaeus and they blocked his way to Jesus and Jesus' view of him. In other words, these types of people blocking the way were the heirs of the Pharisees and the lawyers. You do, remember in Luke 11, verse 20, 52, it says, you did, Jesus says, you did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. In this scenario, these people were literally fulfilling that very role that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees back in Luke chapter 11, Right? And they were doing what was totally forbidden in the Mosaic law. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. That's from Leviticus 19, verse 14. Jesus was talking about the stumbling blocks. And these people in front of Bartimaeus were literally putting a stumbling block in front of a blind man and pending, impeding him from Jesus. In other words, they're not fearing the Lord at all. It's just one more piece of evidence in Jesus' lawsuits against unbelieving, law-breaking, covenant-breaking Israel. <laughs> we have to be careful about things we're doing that may be, be blocking people from getting to the Lord. And remember, Christ had been giving instructions to pray persistently and God would answer them despite the impediment. So if people are blocking you, just keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying. So Bartimaeus exhibited his faith with persistent prayer despite the pressures of the people. He was rewarded with the blessings of sight. Now these people blocking the way, they had their physical sight and yet they were left with their blindness to the kingdom and no blessing. Another point here, thirdly, Bartimaeus represents the remnant amidst the masses of unbelieving Israel. I mean, to unbelievers... The remnant is an annoyance. But to Jesus, the remnant is the heir to the blessings of the kingdom of God. And the final point that I want to bring up here is this critical issue of faith. You know, you might not think that Bartimaeus, what he was doing was praying, but I would contend it is by shouting out to the Lord. Bartimaeus' persistent prayer was a product of his faith, and this led him against the prevailing forces of unbelief to persevere until the end. He kept screaming for the Lord. Encourage, this is encouragement, keep calling out to the Lord. 
And Bartimaeus experienced unequal joy. Have, have you experienced that same kind of joy? And let me, let me ask you, are you sharing it with others? I hope you are. Keep doing it. Are you praising God with your walk and with your talk? So that other people are drawn to Jesus? Are you using your blessings to bless others? Jesus is right where we're at right now. Dear friend, this is the moment. If you don't take it, you'll miss something extraordinary and your spiritual blindness will continue. Just as the crowds tried to keep Bartimaeus from Jesus, so too the crowd in your life are trying to keep you from Jesus. Don't listen to them. Stand up. Get back up. Be bold. Go against the grain. Cry out for mercy and healing. Boldly express your belief in Jesus by recognizing your blindness so that you can receive a blessing that will spill over to everything in your sphere. Well, this concludes this series. God bless you all. I hope you're inspired. And until next time, goodbye. Thank you for joining Dr. Candice for today's podcast. For more resources and weekly prophetic words direct in your email box, go to our website at www.candicesmithyman.com, Facebook at Candice Smithyman, or Instagram at Candice Smithyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps the show reach more people and spread the gospel. Thank you.